Hey everybody, this is episode 10 of Jointly Venturing of Oneness World. Um, today we're very happy to have with us um, Professor David Petrasic from the University of Ottawa Law School uh, in Canada. And we're going to be talking about um, our experiences within the human rights world and how human rights increasingly appears to be under threat um, in a whole, whole range of countries across the world, um, what can be done about it, and what the future holds. So we're really happy to welcome you, David. How are you? I'm very well, Scott, and I'm really happy to be on your podcast. It's a real pleasure. We're super happy to have you. So so what do you think about the world of human rights? We're, we're going on year 70 or so now. Um, since the the major international human rights framework was constructed and there were all these years of kind of very slow progress until the end of the cold war and then it all sort of opened up and the sky seemed to be the limit which was right at the time when when both you and i actually were most actively involved at the international level at the un and elsewhere and it really did in many respects seem like the sky was the limit i mean anything seemed possible in the U un human rights commission and the various treaty bodies and all of that um and then in the recent years we we really have noticed a, a slow sad decline in many respects uh regarding the seriousness to which human rights are accorded and we, the list of countries where this is the case is uh increasingly long so what do you see how do you see the future of human rights unfolding well, I, um, I agree with you. There seemed to be a high point there back in the 90s, but I'm, I'm much less pessimistic than you sound, Scott. Um, it's, uh, the, you know, the conventional wisdom is driven by the dominant media narratives in the world, and those are sadly still largely controlled by Western interests. And um, so the story they sell is that Western power is declining, and because it was the West that invented human rights and that kind of pushed those out into the world uh, and that it's been Western pressure which has focused on the nasty regimes in China or Myanmar or Sudan or Iran <clears throat> or today Venezuela. Um, you know, basically the kind of narrative is that Western pressure is what's pushed human rights forward on the global agenda and put the spotlight on these countries and that if the West is losing economic and even to some extent military power. It's, it's losing, if the West is losing its clout in the world and its clout at the United Nations, then necessarily um, global attention to human rights will suffer uh, because the West won't be there to push it. And I just fundamentally disagree with that narrative. Um, I don't think it's true historically, and I don't think it's a good description of where we are today, that we face a lot of really pressing human rights challenges today. but. Um, I'm, I don't buy into the kind of slipping backwards argument, and, and I'll tell you why. <clears throat> um, if you say, you know, the, the most popular political science book in the field of human rights <clears throat> published in the last 10 years is by a guy called Stephen Hopgood, who's at uh, the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies, and the title of his book is The End Times of Human Rights. <clears throat> and he does very strongly put forward this idea that human rights had its heyday in the 90s. And now, you know, uh, you see rising authoritarianism, populist leaders, you see slippage in a number of countries, restrictions on NGOs, etc. Um, so he comes up with this, you know, the end times of human rights. And his argument is 
we, you know, basically, <clears throat> if we're going to need a new narrative for global justice, human rights is no longer going to serve um, because it was too tied to to Western power and interests, which are declining. But if you make that argument, um, the assumption that you know you're 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 sort of imagining a human rights good time, right? If this is the end times, what were the good times? And when I think back, Scott, when we were working on human rights in the 1990s, you know, we the sky was the limit. But at the same time, remember in the 1990s the kinds of things we were facing uh, in our work. Uh, we were facing a genocide in Rwanda. We were facing another genocide in Bosnia. Um, global refugee populations in 1992 were actually uh, higher than they are today, only marginally so, but there were more refugees in the world in 1992 than there are today. Um, there were more, more, double the number of armed conflicts in the world in 1992 as there are today. And when you think about um, uh, so many issues that are now front and center on the global human rights agenda, which in the 1990s we couldn't even begin <laughs> to get attention or concern for. Think about um, just one area, uh, LGBTQ rights, you know, basic sex, sexual orientation, uh, you know, just the right to love who you want and not to be thrown in prison for it. Um, this was the most marginalized issue in UN discussions. Nobody, <laughs> uh, nobody could get any state to take that up. The few brave NGOs who would walk into the room and make their pitch, uh, they used to be basically, I don't know if you remember this, but were almost booed into silence. Um, it was simply, it was a pariah issue. True. Uh, now we have a special rapporteur on the rights of these people. Now, admittedly, that the vote to get that rapporteur appointed was controversial, and a number of countries in Africa and Asia didn't agree. But a number of countries in Africa, and some even in Asia, did agree <laughs> to appoint that rapporteur two years ago. So um, I don't think we had a human rights good times in the 1990s. I see slow and steady progress. I see slippage on some issues, but I think essentially the the broader narrative, if we look over a longer time frame, is that we're moving slowly forward. And I don't. We can go into this later, but I don't think the fact that Western power is declining is necessarily uh, a bad thing for global attention to human rights issues. Well, that's a very good opening statement there. So, um, you know, on the Western on the Western uh, uh, aspect of human Western rights, power issue, yeah, the Western power issue. You know, um, I never really. I mean, that's all in, in, to a certain extent true. Um, that you know, the victorious parties of the Second World War were <clears throat> primarily responsible for putting together. The basic contours of what was to become, you know, international human rights law and and so on. But I never really look at it too much from that through that lens, you know, as being a Western idea or Western concept. I mean, I look at it much more in you know global universalistic terms. And you know, as a practitioner, as somebody who still does go to you know war zones and disaster zones and slums and things like that. You know, I just noticed that whereas, I don't know, some time ago, a decade or two ago, if you if you held up human rights, there would almost be no opposition to using that as a tool. You know, whereas now um, there is opposition 
at, at the local level in a lot of countries and, you know, questioning the relative power and nature of human rights as a vehicle for justice. Also, you know, advocating for the use of, you know, human rights tools as, a, as an avenue to justice in a lot of countries simply is telling people to use, you know, whatever, a feather against a gun. And, you know, all too often they're just simply ignored and not even taken into account, let alone, you know, creatively violated. So, you know, I, I still, I, I generally also am optimistic in the overall scheme of things when it comes to these matters. But when you look at it at the very local level in so many countries, you know, the day-to-day, minute-by-minute reality of, of what human rights means to a very large number of people, um, it's still far too difficult to, for instance, use human rights law to get a decent home, to acquire, you know, huge numbers of, of economic, social and cultural rights and increasingly, you know, civil and political rights as well. So, you know, it's very much of an uphill battle. I totally think there's been slippage. There's been, you know, an, an, a growing tendency to even elect, let alone allow to take power, um, autocratic uh, men, generally, um, just look at Brazil recently, you know, having had, you know, human rights at the forefront of national and international policy during the period of uh, the PT being in power, the, the Labour Party there. Um, now we have, you know, an extreme right wing authoritarian who, you know, doesn't take human rights into account whatsoever at the national level. So, you know, I think. Okay, but, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Well, you're talking about three different things there. One is, um, and they're all good points. One is pushback at the local level. Um, the second is um, the inadequacy of human rights as a framework to, you know, the gap between what it promises and what it can deliver. And then the third is this sort of rise of the populace and how the populace pose a challenge to the language of human rights. Um, these are different things, I think. The, on the first one, the kind of local pushback, you know, where people are saying, people are sort of challenging the rights discourse and the rights framework at the local level. When that's coming from people who are engaged in local struggles, I see that as an incredibly positive thing because I think that's only going to strengthen the framework. It needs it needs that pushback, right? Um, mm-hmm. It needs to be challenged. It needs to be uh, reformulated. It needs to be recast. It needs to be reinterpreted. All of those things need to happen if, if this framework is going to have vitality into the future, which I think it must, particularly if we're going to be talking about um, ideas of, of, you know, humanity and, and, and one world, as you put it, oneness. Um, so that's good. The, the first thing I think is a good thing. Um, and I think it's a sign actually, um, you know, you can tell when an idea is successful when people start challenging it, right? When yeah. an idea is just kind of out there and no one really cares, you know, when ideas really get traction, that's when they get challenged and that's, that's good. If, you know, and I, so the idea of human rights, it's important that that it meets that local challenge. On the inadequacy of the framework, which is related to the first point, you know, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's for too long, the discourse has been dominated by legal approaches and, um, you know, kind of binary opposition between rights bearers and duty holders and too much focus on the state and, and its obligations. Um, I, I see a lot of that in flux. Uh, I think there's aspects, you know, the pe- things are being brought into the human rights framework, 
which weren't there before in order to make it more meaningful. And one of the most important things here is to see the extent to which um, rights, rights talk empowers people beyond the law. It's not about the law and courts and asserting rights in legal processes. It, it empowers people to, you know, people are increasingly using rights talk as a mobilizing uh, tool uh, that brings people together, ar articulating demands which which aren't re not not in a legal or I mean, certainly not in a familiar legal context. Think about some of the mass movements in India, um, the right to information campaign, the right to food campaign in in India. Incredible mm -hmm. mo mobilizing power, but you couldn't describe that. Even though there were legal aspects of it, you'd be a fool to describe that as a legal struggle, right? It was right. about so much more than that. On the third point about populists, I think you're right to be worried because um, unlike other, <coughs> um, if you like, conservative or um, nationalistic challenges to some of the aspects of rights, populism is particularly worrying because it, a key component of all populist rhetoric is the notion of... Um, uh, you know, uh, 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 your group, you know, this, your own group. We are best. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but this is somehow threatened by an other, right? right? Every populist leader. Now, you know, Trump uses immigrants in other contexts. It's a particular ethnicity. In India, Modi, uh, you know, uses the Muslims. You know, it's it differs depending on the context, but every populist relies on um a very strong othering, right? You, your group is being held back. Somebody is challenging you and they don't have, uh, you know, they're not like you, they're different, they can't be trusted, they're undermining, they're dirty, they, whatever the, the, the rhetoric is, we're all too familiar with it now, sadly. And that is a fundamental challenge to human rights because it splits, you know, the idea of human rights is precisely on the human. Right. We all have the same rights. It doesn't matter what color you are, what sex, what sexual orientation, what ethnicity, what religion. You have the same rights. That was the radical promise of human rights. Um, Absolutely. You, and, and this is what was so radical in 1948, because, you know, people some people go back and say, well, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, it, you know, drew on the Western Enlightenment tradition of natural rights and the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and the American Declaration of Independence and Bill of Rights, etc. But that tradition, that Western Enlightenment tradition, wasn't really about human rights. It was about citizenship rights. And for the most part, the philosophers who sustained it weren't write, writing about declaring rights that were universally valid for people everywhere. They were declaring rights for a particular group of people um, in America that was male uh, property owners and mm. certainly not slaves or women. And, and in France, it was all, you know, and, and it was really interesting. If you go back, you know, the, the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights in the American tradition, it's amazing that at the time, the, the, the guys who sat down and wrote that uh, and put their names to it, saw no contradiction in saying, we hold these rights to be, uh, you know, inalienable, you know, mm -hmm. freedom, liberty. Mm -hmm. uh, and they saw no contradiction between saying that and at the same time being slaveholders. Right, right. Like that there wasn't a, a dissonance in their head around that, right? which is amazing. 
But it's because their conception of rights was this, you know, link to statehood and citizenship. And therefore they could, you know, cut and parse it. Human rights was something different. Human rights is saying, no, no, it's not about citizenship rights. Everybody has these. Now, the populists pose a fundamental challenge to that idea in ways that traditional conservatism hasn't. And so that it is particularly dangerous. You mentioned Bolsonaro and we, we could go through the list. Um, I'm encouraged though. I mean, you know, for every, you know, <clears throat> look what's happening in Sudan this week. Um, look, look what's happening, been happening in Ethiopia over the past year. Um, look at the elections in Malaysia uh, six or seven months ago. I mean, there's a bad news story that, you know, we tend to focus on, but there's, there's some good news stories as well, um, which are challenging authoritarianism and populism. Um, but yeah, we're in a bad patch in, in terms of uh, a populist agenda, uh, which fundamentally challenges the idea of human rights. This is, you know, this is why people say, oh, Trump is, uh, shows no interest in human rights. Of course he doesn't, right? It's, it, it's completely um, inconsistent with saying America first, right? right. It just doesn't, you, you can't put, you can't make those two things fit together. Um, and, <clears throat> and yeah, so, Sorry, I've gone a bit long, but I just think, you know, the populist challenge is particularly worrisome for, because it cuts at the very idea of human rights as something that transcends borders, where populists love borders. In fact, they want more of them. They want, want walls. They want walls and borders and everything else. Yeah. You know, so you can, I, I mean, in the same way that you can um, you know, look at human rights historically in, in terms of, you know, by people resisting them, that means they have a certain power over and above, you know, what you might have thought they would have. In, in a certain way, the rise of populism also can be viewed in, in a really positive way, which is simply that this is the last gasped, last gasp attempt by those that are so minded to attempt to preserve a largely delusory past in which they themselves had total and complete power, right? Right. Um, so in other, in, in other words, it's, it's not the beginning of something new. It's actually the end of something, you know, very old. And as time goes on, as more people realize that, you know, these types of views are just entirely inappropriate, entirely outdated, entirely unrealistic, um, they will start failing um, one by one to achieve these, you know, ridiculous aims based on the other and there will be a growing uh resistance as you're already seeing in many you know parts of the world uh which totally reject that outright and wish to replace it with a much more um human rights based approach to things and you know that's always our hope and wish at oneness world that you know really so much of this really in the end comes down to personal exposure you know, I mean, there's there's nothing anybody could say to me ever, you know, to convince me that populism was correct and that, you know, a, a nationalistic approach to anything was the right way to go forward. Because, you know, I happen to have been everywhere. I happen to have know people from pretty much every every country on the planet. And and I know that our similarities and what we share are so much infinitely greater than than the small differences that, you know exists between us. And I think there's an ever-growing number of people 
who based not just on on reading books and and uh, whatever religious lessons they may have gotten or something else, but probably personal exposure by just meeting people from everywhere across the world by having you know good fortune to travel um, and to be increasingly exposed to ideas via the internet and you know mass media, et cetera, that more and more people will reject um, populism and you know new forms of political evolution will occur that are certainly right. not as ideal perhaps as we'd want and people won't be as kind as we would want them to be and as loving and compassionate but nonetheless there'll be a little bit more you know than right, the right but this is i think i think this is a positive um you know the somebody voted for trump in both scenario in fact many tens of millions of people did mm -hmm. um and their fears were preyed on, and, um, and and you know it's it's a false promise, as they'll see, and this is what you're you're pointing out. Um, but uh, rather than portray it as the last gasp, although I think in some I think in some respects you're right. I think the more winning political strategy is to try and reframe some of those grievances in a language where people feel they their concerns won't be left behind. Mm -hmm. um, you know, rights are revolutionary, but in some ways they're also can be also appealing to conservatives in the sense that, well, if you're white, uh, aged and middle class in America, um, and you fear the rise of, and you're rural and you feel the rise of the power of urban cities, which are multicultural and, um, you know, diverse and have all kinds of different social values than you what's going to reassure you to remain in a political framework um, where you won't be, your concerns won't simply be pushed aside totally. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, you can, you can approach that problem by saying rights talk, right? Sure. Uh, so there, I mean, there's more, a, more rights, more rights would mean. Yeah. I mean, there's a way of challenging right? this within the rights framework. Um, you know, when you think about the grievances that it, that, you know, drive, the, you know, particularly the states where Trump, uh, you know, turned uh, uh, blue states into red ones, um, you know, the Rust Belt states, and, and look what's happened to them. Look at the mass deprivations of social and economic rights in those areas. Yeah. Uh, and, and people felt hopeless. And, and of course, a populist comes along and promises the moon the moon and America first and, you know, no more trade deals and all that kind of stuff. We know it's all false, but it, yeah, it's hard to blame them <laughs> for, for, for buying into some of that. Anyway, we need to focus on the positive. Um, the, you know, one of the reasons you, you spoke earlier about people kind of challenging human rights, one of the problems of people uh, like ourselves who, uh, who are human rights advocates, I, maybe I shouldn't include you in this right now, but uh, one of the problems of the, human rights advocates generally is they're focused on what's going wrong. It's understandable, right? You pick up a report by Amnesty International, it's all about bad things. Um, but that's not a, you know, it's, it, you can't really change the world uh, and build a mass movement based only on what's wrong. You have to tell them what's right and what works. You have to build a positive vision. And, uh, and I really think this is a major challenge now for an awful lot of human rights work. And it's, it's a, it's a, one of the reasons why I'm so strong in challenging this narrative of decline and end times and, you know, the, the human rights 
heyday is past. And it's because I just think it, it leaves you paralyzed, right? What do you do? Uh, climb into a hole, um, uh, you know, and pull, pull something on top of it and, you know, and watch Netflix. I mean, you've got to say to people, look, um, there's a positive narrative here about change, which can bring, um, which really can bring a, a lot of people of diverse political backgrounds and diverse uh, ideas and views together uh, around common themes, which will move forward. Uh, and I think that's, that's the way to to challenge some of this populism is not always just with this shrieking and pointing out all of the dangers and you know talking about Nazi Germany and and, and that it's 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 about finding positive narratives and examples stories you know stories of how things can change um, through um, through empowering people and through giving them options etc cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, you know, I'm generally, like I said, I am generally optimistic about all of these, you know, human rights matters and the way the way that, you know, I have traditionally and still worked on these things is to, you know, really try to push the envelope when it comes to what human rights actually means and the issues to which, um, you know, they apply kind of in the real world, whether it's, you know, housing rights or forced evictions or restitution for refugees or climate displacement, all those things. And, um, you know, you can often have victories, you know, from a, you know, activist, lawyer, advocate angle. Um, you can have a lot of victories. And sometimes those victories really grow into some substantive things and other times they grow into less substantive things. But nonetheless, you can um, really facilitate positive legal changes and practical changes um, on the ground. But there are a number of, you know, really large scale overarching global issues that are, in my view, really difficult to imagine overcoming through a human rights approach. And obviously, you know, human rights is one aspect of, of many, many political, you know, tendrils that need to be applied to global problems. But when you look at questions such as um, you know, rising inequality in the world, um, which is probably at the highest level of any any point in human history. Uh, climate change issues broadly defined, you know, whether, you know, not just rising sea levels, but, you know, the heat, temperature changes, um, drought, and all the other manifestations of climate change, which are happening faster and more, more uh, in a widespread nature than previously predicted. You look at still the... Uh, the unending consumer attitude expressed by most people, most places, where the only limit to one's consumption of either fossil fuels or manufactured products is simply the ability to pay for them and all of the environmental side effects of that. And then look at something that I've worked on for you know, a very long time, like, like 30 years, um, the whole question of slums and inadequate housing conditions which, you know, we were obviously trying to use human rights approaches to uh, change for the better for those people. And, you know, recent estimates by the UN point to, you know, one out of three people being a slum dweller by the year 2050. So, in other words, going backwards. So you look at inequality, climate change, slums, and, you know, this, this inability to accept limits of consumption, 
And those are all very huge problems that have huge impacts on human rights, on not just you know the planet as a whole, but upon the rights of people affected. And yes, we can use human rights to a certain extent to address those things, but to date, human rights has not been that effectual in uh, addressing any of those overarching issues. I agree, but um, it, that's that's because we expect you know we we expect too much of it. Um, you know, recognition of a right to health care doesn't give you a, a health system, <laughs> right. but it's a fundamental part of a effective and equitable health system. Um, the right to adequate housing is not going to uh, solve the problem of slum populations in the world. But if we're going to deal with that problem, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure the right considering the rights aspects of it is going to be fundamental. In other words, let's not um, front load the human rights framework with too much responsibility for fixing everything that's wrong in the world because it's, it's, it's bound to disappoint. It's, um, it, it's a framework which has proven its value in many, many areas, but rarely on its own is it a solution to any major, um, whether domestic or global public policy problem. Uh, and, and that, again, is a little bit the fault of, of you know, human rights campaigners who, again, promise too much, right? Uh, it, it makes it sound like, you know, it's, it's only human rights. You just only have to recognize this and everything's going to flow from it. No, um, that, that's not the case. Uh, so I, there's limits. I mean, I don't know if you've seen that there's a new book by a historian at uh, Yale, Samuel Moyne, who wrote this other quite well-known book about human rights called The Last Utopia, Human Rights in History. He's now published a, a, a major book that's causing a lot of controversy and debate and basically saying the human rights framework offers nothing to tackle domestic and global inequalities. And therefore, you know, it's inherently conservative and we need a new framework to really get at the problem of, of global injustice. Um, there's a lot of pushback. A lot of people are, you know, <laughs> pushing back. It's a big debate, certainly in the academic field, but not only. Um, I, I think there is something in the human rights framework which which is important to help us tackle inequality, but it's it's not the whole picture. Um, political action is a huge part of the picture of all of the things you're talking about. Um, you know, um, winning political power or changing. Uh, politics, changing the way politics happens, changing who makes politics, who gets to decide. And of course, with climate change, our biggest problem there is, is um, you know, the, the, the massive gap between what needs to be done and then who we empower to make decisions about it, right? Uh, and the short-termism inherent in almost all political processes, whereas climate change is, you know, an intergenerational, it's a it's a huge problem over time. And so no one at one given point in time bears the responsibility for dealing with it completely. Um, so yeah, human rights is, is not going to solve those things. But um, I would argue, including in relation to climate change, you are not going to solve them without attention also to human rights. It's about lowering our expectations a bit and asking human rights campaigners not to promise too much um, in their rhetoric. Mm -hmm. uh, being a little bit more humble about what they're offering. 
Right. And I think there's still a common misperception that, you know, I've heard this many times, you know, traveling throughout the world that the instant that you mention human rights, the there's an immediate reluctance to address it at all at the local level, because all they see it as is an, is an international tool by which to undermine the local government and the country concerned. Right. So it's not at all about ordinary people enjoying ordinary rights. It's just well, this foreign policy tool that can be used right. by governments to Right. And that's that's another huge <laughs> it's you know, you you'll remember this, Scott, from all of our years in Geneva. You know, it was the most surreal thing. You'd have all of these people show up in Geneva to debate human rights with each other from different countries. And it was incredibly politicized and um and they were all they were all basically diplomats from their foreign mm -hmm. ministries. Mm -hmm. They were the least equipped people to talk about how you actually solve human rights problems in their countries because they were diplomats. They, right. they didn't know anything about how to build a fair justice system or how to deal with the rights of slum dwellers. You know, it should have been some guy from the Ministry of Housing. Um, I've often thought that it would be really interesting uh, if instead of a human rights council made up of 47 governments, which what we have now, right, who get elected every four years or whatever, is if we had a human rights council made up of 100 mayors of cities around the world. Mm -hmm. um, and they came together and talked about human rights problems. And there was like a peer review mechanism of some sort. Because, you, you know, I think you'd have much more interesting conversations. And when you think about... Um, human rights concerns for the ordinary person, security, right? Policing, uh, housing, I mean, sure. water, water. Yeah. issues of equitable distribution and discrimination. So much of that is municipal. It's actually at the city level this happens, right? Um, but the, you know, these mayors aren't necessarily empowered to do it. And, and anyway, I, um, that would be a much more interesting conversation. It's so boring to sit around and listen to diplomats debate human rights with each other. It inevitably politicizes it because for diplomats, it's all about, um, you know, trying to ensure your country isn't shamed, right? I mean, that's their job. Their job right. is to protect their country's image and reputation. Um, so it, yeah, it, it's just, <laughs> we're stuck with this, uh, we're stuck with this system <clears throat> which brings together the wrong people in terms of solving the problem and also adds to the problem by injecting this, you know, unnecessary degree of politicization into it. I mean, it's always going to be to some degree politicized. But if you put 100 diplomats in the room, it's going to be, you know, hyper politicized. Right. No, absolutely. So just back qu uh, quickly to the question of citizenship. And, you know, one of the themes that we talk about in this podcast a lot is the whole question of world citizenship, you know, the ancient idea that goes back literally millennia to Socrates and earlier. Um, the, the, the very simple notion that, you know, everyone everywhere should be have the same citizenship status and we should build political structures around that rather than around uh, sovereignty, nation states, borders, etc. So where do you think we're at on that topic? Are we getting ever closer to that with, uh, you know, technological developments and world travel and things of that nature? Or is populism pushing that notion backwards? Does How does human rights assist us to get closer to that ideal where your your citizenship and my citizenship and everyone else's is ultimately the same. Where do you think we stand on that these days? Well, I think if 
if the idea is going to have any, uh, well, um, what would I say? Um, human rights provides the intellectual and moral foundation for an idea of world citizenship. I, I can't imagine such an idea of world citizenship without something like a notion of the world citizens um, holding similar rights and obligations. Right, um, very much and so. And because, as I pointed out earlier, um, the Western Enlightenment tradition was focused on, you know, rights within borders and rights of certain people within those borders. Um, human rights is a fundamental challenge to that. And, and does it does point us to asking the question about, um, you know, where should your obligations be to to your local polity or to a world polity? Mm -hmm. um, it, it puts that question front and center. But are we closer to achieving that? I mean, I used to be a member of way back when in law school, the World Federalists of Canada. Right. right. God, God bless them. They're still around. And uh, um, I suppose. Um, I, I suppose intellectually, I'm committed to that idea. But as a practical matter, I think we're, we're far away from it. Um, and the reason is, I think because um, we, you know, states are still the central players on the international stage, despite all of the um, challenge to state power posed by economic globalization, despite the rise of uh, corporate power, despite the fact of, you know, fragmentation of political power in many countries. So we have all kinds of militias and armed groups that are wielding what power that you know, we, we assume should be wielded by states. Despite all of that, states are still the preeminent actors on the global stage. And I don't see them anytime soon um, surrendering that space. Uh, on the other hand, um, when momentous change happens, it's usually as a result of um, momentous crisis, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. So some of the things you pointed to earlier, climate change, uh, I would add to that, you know, weapons of mass destruction and possibilities of nuclear war, which, you know, uh, worryingly are are increasing. And, and, and the fact that chemical and biological weapons are increasingly attainable by, you know, powers and groups other than states, all of those things worry me immensely and point to momentous crisis. Um, and so... It, it may be a momentous crisis, which actually forces us into momentous change along the lines that you describe. In other words, um, setting up structures of world government, which give people a say at a global level. Uh, but it, exactly how we're going to get there it, it, as a practical matter it, in the near future, I, it's hard for me to see it. Well, we still have, you know, a very, co very common uh, you, you know, the, to foment the greatest fear, uh, many people involved in political circles will hold up the specter of world government as being the most evil thing that could ever happen to the human race, right? Uh, particularly from the United States perspective, you know? Um, and yet, you know, in, in my view, unless we increasingly go in that direction and ensure that it's as dem democratic as possible and as participatory as possible, I, I think it's almost impossible to imagine our species continuing on for another 100, 200, 300, 400 generations, you know, like we've been here thus far. 
And, you know, the it, it's really rather, from any sort of philosophical perspective, it's really quite absurd that we haven't made more progress on this front, given the fact that our planet is so finite. And given the fact that, you know, every single one of the 36 and a half billion acres of land on planet Earth has been mapped, has been charted, has been looked at, has been visited just about, you know, there's no mystery anymore about what's out there on, on our planet. We know what's there. And yeah, but, either we unify in, in a single polity of seven and a half to soon to be eight billion people and start distributing things more equitably, or else it's going to really end up as, a, as sort of a formalized planet comprised of, of not just us's and them's, but of haves and have-nots, and the haves will get increasingly smaller and the have-nots will get increasingly larger. Yeah, um, okay, but, but maybe you're... Um... Maybe you're asking the wrong question, which is about, um, uh, you know, you said we don't seem to be getting to world government. On the other hand, um, you know, the digital revolution and the globalization have posed enormous challenges for human rights and for ideas of oneness, which you're um, championing. But they've also posed um, some real opportunities. If you think about the extent to which on issues of, let's say, global public policy concern. You could pick one of the issues you you work strongly around displacement, housing, and slums. If you think of the extent to which in the last 30 years, global networks have developed around those issues, which link people from dozens of countries and dozens of disciplines um, who are able to come together and put issues on an international agenda and then work and act to try and implement them, it's, it's really breathtaking. Um, we, we could talk about all kinds of examples of this. Now, this doesn't, if you look at it formally, this doesn't mean the General Assembly still isn't dominated by one state with one vote, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, but that's a much harder thing to change. Whereas, um, you know, building these global networks, issue networks, or networks that come together around, um, you know, sometimes it's around regional issues, sometimes around global issues, whatever. I see this as kind of like, this is where I'm hopeful because I see this as a kind of like a building this global citizens movement. It's not, it hasn't coalesced into something, you know, overwhelming, but if you look at it in particular areas on particular issues, it's really impressive. And, and it really, it really doesn't depend much on um, what your own government's position on the issue is. Right. Right. Uh, sure. You still need governments because in order to get action, you still need governments. But but you know the kind of the mobilizing force, the policy discussion, the solutions, the science, the economics—you know all that kind of stuff you need, right, to move forward happens kind of despite governments sometimes, and and then people have clever ways to present it to them and get them to act on it. It makes governments look like they invented it. I mean that's the trick, isn't it? Um, well, that so, is, but, you know, people with, you know, what we would call world-centric consciousness, so to speak, are very rarely inclined to enter politics at the national level, right? So you actually have a world of people governing countries and having political power who, by and large, I mean, some do, but by and large, they really don't have this sort of level of, of appreciation of the unity of the human race uh, at the level that we would like it to be at 
simply because they're representing their own national interests. And that, and that as positive as the UN is in so yeah. many different ways, UN is basically made up on that premise. It's the premise of nation states, each representing their own national interests and trying to sort of find a way forward, you know? So it's really, you know, I would see the UN not as the end of the process, but simply as a, as a stepping stone towards something far more global and far more globally democratic comprised of people who are already there. And if you look at, you know, various um, analyses, a lot of people think somewhere around five, maybe 10% of the human race, so 700 million people, let's say, 350 to 700 million, are kind of already there. They're ready to go. You know, they're they're at world-centric consciousness levels, and they're very happy to imagine a, a truly global future. But, you know, getting that remaining 90% there is the is the real quest on the positive front you know very often with ideas that start out from one or two people that eventually become sort of common sense themes you mentioned lgbtqi issues etc um that started off really small and suddenly became mainstream and now it's you know in many many countries there's still progress to be made but it it made a quantum leap from a small number of people truly you know pushing for it believing in it into something that you know, the vast majority of people could uh, accept and support. So I think it's the same with almost all ideas. Um, you have a very small nucleus of people at the beginning that then once it reaches a certain critical mass, it sort of kicks over and the vast majority of people begin to accept. Yeah, and and, and uh, we to come full circle back to the human rights. I mean, the, <clears throat> the trick here is to um, tell the positive narrative that makes the small group of people not feel like the beleaguered minority with no hope, but actually makes them feel like uh, they're on the right side of history. You know, they're bending the long arc of justice. They're, they, you know, it, and, and that's what builds this, you know, this eventual mass movement. Um, and you can see that in, in a lot of areas. I mean, I, um, I can just give one example here. When I started working on human rights at the international level in the 1980s, I started working on the death penalty at Amnesty International. Mm -hmm. And at that, at that time, and as you, know, as you know, the death penalty, unfortunately, is not absolutely prohibited in international human rights law. The kind of sense is you should progressively get rid of it, but it's not absolutely prohibited. Um, and uh, so working against it was a real challenge, and in particularly in the context where there was like 36 abolitionist countries out of 200 in the world or 195, whatever. Mm -hmm. And so um, kind of making the argument that this was the right thing to do was, it was a little bit tricky, right? <laughs> because like, you know, a hundred, you know, three quarters of the states in the world had the death penalty and a large number of them used it. Um, Right. And I was working in a small team as a volunteer at the death penalty team in London of Amnesty International, and, and they wanted to publish a big book and a new campaign on the death penalty. This was in 1986-87. And they developed this idea in that team, which was absolutely brilliant, and it was to respond to this problem. They'd been working on the death penalty for 10 years and it got no traction at all. Uh, the Amnesty membership worldwide was really, it was really hard to get them interested in this. Um, and, you know, and they were, it was essentially, it was just, it felt like a huge problem and where did you start, right? That was the kind of sense of it. So this team in London started publishing every two months or three months this bulletin and they called it the March to Abolition. 
And it was based on a simple realization, which was that every month or two, somewhere in the world, there was some progress on the death penalty. In other words, almost never did a country which had abolished the death penalty reinstate it. Mm -hmm. But all the time, countries were restricting the use of the death penalty, uh, limiting the number of crimes it could be imposed for, you know, uh, for. Um, they were abolishing it in their military codes. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, they were uh, abolishing the death penalty for children under 18. And even if they hadn't put any child under 18 to death in 60 years, they still in law did that step. So it allowed you every two months to publish a bulletin called the March to Abolition, which would have 10 or 15 little items in it, which were all showing progress. Right. And, right. and that changed completely how people campaigned on the death penalty. It, and it was like, guys, we're on the right side of history. And uh, today, of course, there's 120 countries which are abolitionist in law and about 140 which are abolitionist in law or practice. There's only about 50 or 60 countries retaining the death penalty. And actually, the vast majority of executions in the world are carried out by only um, but, you know, five or six countries. Right, right. Uh, it's completely changed. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, and a global movement, not just Amnesty, it was all kinds of people all over the world bought into this idea of we're on the right side because because, you know, there was always this little incremental progress. And I think it's the same on LGBTQI rights. Right. Sure. It looks it looks gruesome if you if you consider the number of countries which still criminalize same sex relationships. It, it, it you know, it looks bad. But if you instead say, look, how many countries have made progressive change on this issue? over the last 10 or 15 years, it gives people a sense of a progress and moving forward. And I think that's absolutely crucial, including for the idea you're trying to build, which is the idea of um, moving beyond the nation state as the fundamental unit of, of global governance. Uh, mm -hmm. I, think, I think the way to do that is to <clears throat> point to all of the different examples, which aren't about the UN General Assembly and one nation, one vote. That's not going to change in our lifetimes, I don't think. But there's all kinds of other things which are changing, which do show this movement towards a greater net recognition that we all are together on one planet, uh, one humanity. Um, and, and it's showing, you know, the small steps, which are expressions of that, which, which, because uh, you spoke about changing the minds of the other 90%, right? Mm-hmm. How do you get them to buy into this? You get them to buy into this to by to showing them that you know we are making we're making these small steps towards this. You don't get them to buy into it by sort of pointing to the general assembly and saying, you know, let's instead have a world parliament because they can't imagine how that would happen. But if you can tell them a story about which is made up of about a whole bunch of small stories, which is about people coming together across borders to solve problems of global concern, I think that's the way to get them to, to buy into it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you need to have a combination of, um, you know, very optimistic, esoteric, almost impossible dream type stuff combined with real nitty gritty practical realities and, and showing how history has, in fact, many, many examples of terrible things turning into pretty good things, whether it's, you know, 
the issues you mentioned, but, you know, think of the rights of women globally, think of the rights of children globally, think of the rights of indigenous peoples globally. I mean, the list really goes on in terms of, you know, groups that were traditionally very disenfranchised at, in every continent and who now, at least in, in law, have equal rights and, you know, increasingly powerful legal legs to stand on. So, you know, there is a lot of, a lot of progress to point to globally, you know, even, even poverty levels, you know, levels of extreme poverty have been going down. I mean, there's them been going down enough and, and there's still way too much inequality, et cetera, but levels of abject, extreme, total deprivation, poverty have been going down. And, you know, we can't yeah. ignore that fact either. And that's, that's an amazing step forward. And, you know, I just hope we don't get to the stage where, you know, I, I mean, I talk to, you know, thousands of people a year about all of these things. And I'll tell you the most common, uh, retort that I get back is, um, you know, that oneness idea, that world citizenship idea, that world parliament idea will only happen. Um, and I'm like waiting to hear their answer. And almost universally, it's when the aliens come, right? <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It, it's unbelievable whether it doesn't matter what continent I'm in or where I am, at what airport, what plane, what meeting that happens. That is by far the most common answer, you know, like, oh, when aliens come, then we'll finally unify, you know, so yeah. you want to kind of do it before the aliens come. Right. Yeah. What, what do you want? What you want to say to them is um, is like, uh, dude, wake up. The aliens are here and, and it has a name. His name's Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah. Or or the alien is just, you know, homo homo sapien. You know, we are. Yeah. the aliens, But right? it's. um. I still think, you know, you get to, you get people to see the value of this by even speaking about what's happening now on issues of global concern, um, where, um, you know, people's consciousness is changing. Here's a great example. Um, you and I both lived in Switzerland for many years, an inherently deeply conservative country. It only joined the United Nations in 2003. Right. Um, uh has very restrictive immigration policies uh, and and has had a populist party which has been influencing government policy for the past uh, 25 years yeah um that and as as you know um in, in switzerland things can be put to a referendum if enough people want them to be and so this populist party is always putting uh, questions uh, 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 to the referendum and one of the questions that was put in the last year was should um swiss law take precedence over international law very clever question. Right. Uh, uh, very clever. And it was a way, of course, to kind of get out of some of the EU regulations that Switzerland has to follow, even though it's not in the EU, but because it's joining the free movement uh, aspects of the EU. And it was also a way to get out of um, human rights obligations under the Council of Europe or under UN human rights treaties. Uh, but cleverly put, and I was Many of us were desperate because we thought if you ask that question in almost any country, you know, even in Canada, if you said to people in Canada, which do you think is more important, Canadian or international law? I mean, I teach international law. I'm pretty sure I know what the answer would be, right? Because it's, it's mm -hmm. instinctively people would say Canadian law, right? Like you have to really work hard to make them understand. There's a lot of nuances there. But the Swiss voted 60% for international law taking precedence. Oh, that's excellent. Wow, and that was, wow. that was because of a campaign of a group of very clever young Swiss people who have been challenging these referendums by changing the debate and, and spinning the positive narrative. And in this case, they were able to point to 
everything Swiss would lose if international right. law disappeared. Right. right. <laughs> you know, all of you know, Switzerland depends on trade. Um, Swiss people love the fact that they travel around Europe without visas. You know, there are all kinds of things, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they very cleverly changed the tone of the campaign, not about sovereignty. It was about how international law works for you um, and right. how, stu how stupid this question is. Because, of course, it doesn't mean international law runs roughshod over, you know, Swiss concerns, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so that's a really nice positive story. You know, 60% of Swiss people can vote that way. God, imagine, right? Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, most anyway, international I, law is hidden, right? Most international, you don't see international law in action, you know? And I think yeah. that's really an important realization to make that vast majorities of, of the human race benefit totally from international law working, but they're not going to see it on a minute by minute, day to day basis. It that's, just exactly. goes on, you know, every, every airplane in the sky is covered <laughs> by international exactly. law. You know, exactly. That you get a piece of mail from another country is exactly. covered by international law. It's about, it's about you know, overcoming these populist narratives with our own positive, uh, our own positive stories. Yeah, and there has to be also to get people up to the you know level of wanting world citizenship and wanting to share their citizenship with everyone everywhere, and having sort of you know, you know highly democratic global systems of governance in place, they have to be convinced that that will be directly beneficial to them and right. to and those. The way, and, the, and instead of showing it to them abstractly, the way to get them to see that is to show them things that are happening now that are working across borders right right which like the european union is a perfect example right well I mean, you know brexit has increased support for the european union in almost every eu country yeah and all the voices for you know removal have like gone silent in most of those yeah. countries yeah you know no, all of you know it's amazing even in denmark where there was a strong you know get out of the eu movement and and now it's it's basically climb back into its shell and shut the, shut the lid because yeah. people are like, oh, no, wait a minute. This is a bad idea. Anyway, I think really I'm a positive thing. Yeah, I think probably I'm, I'm going to have to leave. OK, no problem, my friend. Thank you so much. That was a great conversation. Yeah, no, terrific. And uh, um, what's the oneness sign off? <laughs> I'll just have to leave that a mystery. Live as one? I don't know. It's um, whatever you want it to be and however it manifests in your own reality. And okay, that's, well, that's it. But it's all there for the taking. That's the thing. You know. Can we say all for one and all for oneness, perhaps? We can say that. Yeah, the new three okay. months approach. All right. Take but care, thank Scott. Thank you so much, David. We'll talk to you soon. All the best. Bye. Take care. Bye.